Please be advised, this sermon contains sensitive and mature themes and is not intended for children. So if you've been here before, you've heard me talk probably, or quote at least, about Ralph Waldo Emerson, who's probably the most giant thinker and teacher of our Unitarian Universalist traditions. And I want to share with you right now the first quote that I ever heard when I was a teenager from Emerson. Some of you might know it as well. I imagine actually some of you do. It goes like this, and it's sort of a poem. To laugh often and much, to win the respect of intelligent people and the affection of children, to earn the appreciation of honest critics and endure the betrayal of false friends, to appreciate beauty, to find the best in others, to leave the world a bit better, whether by a healthy child, a garden patch, or a redeemed social condition, to know that even one life has breathed easier because you have lived. This is to have succeeded. Now, this may have been the first Emerson quote that I ever heard or read, but Emerson most assuredly did not write it. Doesn't even sound like him. The theory behind it is that it was in a collection in a book in 1902, and on the opposite page from an, a different Emerson quote was this poem. And then some people really liked the poem, but the author was unknown, so they just started describing it to Emerson, and there you are. That's the story. But even if Emerson did not write it, I have to say I've always, always loved this quote, especially the most deeply sentimental parts within me. Now, I've got to say some parts of the quote of the poem sound a little bit like, if you remember these from your dentist's office or your orthodonture, those of you who were going in the mid to late 70s, early 80s, getting braces, stuff like that, they used to have these uh, posters there of like a little kitten, sort of like out over a ledge, just like going for that ball of twine. Like quotes, you can do it, never give up hope. Well, you know, this poem's a little bit like that. But even more than the sentimental part, I think it is true nonetheless because it reaches at a definition of success. What does it really mean to succeed in this life, to live so abundantly that at the end we might call it, that even if just one other person breathes easier? Because we have lived that as success. See, success in our culture, in this country very often, is thought of as the power of acquisition. You are successful if you got what you wanted. But the best part of this poem is that it redefines success quite radically. Success is more a matter of answering the question, what did you love? Success is a matter not of acquisition, but of appreciation. Because at the end of the day, the end of a life, what defines the quality of our existence and what makes our happiness and our joy truly worthwhile and truly sustainable. This is why we gather. It's one of the central goals of religious community to be able to discern together what it is and what kinds of the success are that allow us to enjoy this life, not just as a momentary pleasure, but as something that is truly, deeply, absolutely meaningful. I heard a story recently about a guy who had a true quest for success. He worked tirelessly to succeed, to share himself with the world. He was so dedicated, so devoted, so driven to succeed that every thought, every moment was consumed by this overwhelming passion that he would share himself with the world. He worked at it. He struggled for it. He suffered for it. And day after day, he labored at it. It was so important to him that it brought his family together. And they all engaged in this quest to be a true success. And then finally, one day it happened. The success was achieved. 
All the family's efforts made it come true. And I think you know them. Balloon Boy. Richard Henney was driven by an overwhelming desire to succeed. That people would know him. That people would know his family. And I guess in one way you could say he did succeed. By way of a hoax. By way of manipulating other people to worry. So his wish was granted. And it proved that his wish was as fruitless and as futile as trying to catch the wind itself. Emerson, in a quote that he actually did write, said, be careful what you worship, which means to give worth to. Be careful what you worship, because what you worship, you will become. What we worship, we will become. And if we worship the kind of success at all expense, at whatever cost, well, then Richard Henney's story makes sense. But if we define success differently, then we're going to look for it in some different places rather than just in fame or notoriety. Probably the most well-known theory of our time, at least in the last five years or so, about focusing our desire to get what we want and to achieve our understanding or an understanding of success and the way that we might get it, probably the most famous exponent of that is called, as some of you might know, simply The Secret. And many of you are familiar with that. Okay? Well, I feel about The Secret... Um, let me see what I can quote here. Remember the movie Clueless? That retelling of Jane Austen's Emma with a wonderful lead character. Alicia Silverstone was the actress who played it, but her character's name was um, Cher Horowitz. I mean, it's a kind of wonderful kind of name. Well, she is describing one of her rivals, and this is exactly the way that I feel about The Secret. She describes one of her rivals as a Monet. Seen from a distance, it's okay, but up close, it's a big old mess. <laughs> That's how I feel about The Secret. Now, The Secret has had probably more marketing behind it than any other book of recent times. The idea is that The Secret, big T-H-E, big S-E-C-R-E-T, was passed down through history, and Shakespeare knew it, and Newton knew it, and all the famous people in history knew it, and now finally The Secret has been revealed, and it is ours to be known. Truth be told, its history is as reliable as the fiction in the Da Vinci Code, and frankly, without the success of the Da Vinci Code, the secret probably never would have been written in the first place. They actually look alike when you look at the packaging. This is the idea behind the secret. Something called the law of attraction exists in the world, which is basically that like attracts like. Our thoughts, which are a form of energy, creates the conditions of our life and create the future conditions of our success or lack of success. Note that I did not say our thoughts help create future conditions of our life what the secret insists upon is that our thoughts absolutely without qualification creates the material conditions of our existence now at that most distance and i'm talking far away here at most distant level when i view the secret there's a sort of basic obvious truth what we concentrate on is more likely to happen duh it's fairly obvious the power of positive thinking, Norman Vincent Peale, it's no great mystery, you catch more highs, we, we catch more flies with honey rather than vinegar. The Tipping Point, Malcolm Gladwell's book, wonderful book, talks about that salespeople are really successful, are incredibly determined, are incredibly upbeat, very happy, shake people's hands, look in the eyes, smile. You know, it's sort of seven habits of very effective people kind of stuff. And what we think does 
influence our surroundings. I think we all know that. There is a connection between the mind, the body, and the spirit. For years in medicine, it's just been known as the placebo effect. If we think something might happen and we think a potential cure might help us, then it is more likely, maybe just by a matter of degree, more likely that it may happen. The problem I have with the secret is that it takes this very general, obvious observation and completely contorts it. Completely takes it to a place that is not just empirically false, but doesn't answer a deeper question. The kind of questions that animate our life here at Wellsprings. Does this understanding of the law of attraction or the secret really help us grow? Does it help us to grow to be abundant in love and abundant in compassion and abundant in wisdom? My answer is that no. Resoundingly, no, it does not. A New Age thinker who I actually do like somewhat, a guy named D. Wayne Dyer, if maybe you see him after midnight on all the PBS shows when they're trying to raise money, he actually twists this a little bit, and I think it's much, much more true. He says, you don't get, we don't get what we want. You get who you are. You get what you are. Spiritual growth is a matter not of predicting outcomes, but a matter of forming our character. Less a matter of defining ourselves by the external realities in which we find ourselves, and more a matter of saying, what is our attitude that we bring to the state of our life? That yes, that attitude can change things, but not as if it absolutely will. In some ways, this goes all the way back. This insight goes all the way back to the beginning of Buddha's story, when he strove for enlightenment. At first raised as the prince in a kingdom in which he had everything, everything, great wealth, great health, everything was given to him. He rejected it because he recognized that was no way to find a way out of suffering. In fact, becoming attached to all those things was a way into suffering. And so he vowed that he would live on one, just one grain of rice a day. But he found in that way, too, in extreme poverty, there was also attachment and striving and forcing things. What Buddha discovered, and it is true then as it is now, that it is not so much about the external reality of our lives. When Buddha started to awaken, as we decided, we can awaken. We turn our thoughts to the nature of our desires themselves. Wealth and poverty are both entirely morally neutral. What matters most is the shape of our attitude related to the state that we are in. And this is where the secret really falls down for me. It lacks any differentiation or any way to differentiate between our different kinds of desires. I mean, we all know them. We've all had them. The kinds of desires that are absolutely fantasy-based. No relationship to reality whatsoever. I will cop to having probably ten of them a day. But which are the wishes, the true heartfelt wishes, the heartfelt goals that are actually based in reality and related to other people? What's the difference between our desires that are driven by the egocentric need that we all have, and I probably have 20 of these a day, the desire to make reality and other people especially conform to how I would have all you operate if I would rule the world? What's the difference between that kind of desire and the kind of desire that says the soul finds its delight in sharing gifts and being with others in a spirit of compassion and joy? By the way, these are not easy questions to answer. What kind of desire is a healthy one or an unhealthy one? These are not easy questions to answer. Sometimes things fall right in the middle. But I think we still got to ask the question. 
Ask the question, is this an egocentric desire or drive, or is it one that is truly of benefit to my life and the benefit to other people's lives? It's at least important to check ourselves from time to time to ask, are these desires healthy or not? But because the secret doesn't ask us to examine, investigate, as the Dalai Lama says, the nature of our desires, it leads us, I believe, to some absolutely, truly suspect spiritual places. I'm going to read you a passage right now that when I read it for the first time in the book, the secret, literally I had to restrain myself from tossing the book across the room. It offended me this, this deeply. It writes, the book writes, you are inviting illness if you are listening to people talking about their illness. As you listen, you are giving all of your thought and focus to illness. And when you give your thought to something, you are asking for it. And you are certainly not helping the sick person. You are adding energy to their illness. If you really, and this is the part that really gets me, if you really want to help that person, change the conversation to good things. If you can, or just simply leave. <laughs> and be on your way. Now, when I first read this, I've got to tell you what immediately came to mind was an absurd kind of mighty Python-like sketch, absurd comedy sketch. Imagine going to your doctor and having the following dialogue ensue. Doctor comes in. So, so how are you feeling today? Well, doc, I, you know, I'm having this fever and you know, I got a little bit of a rash here and I'm fatigued and I'm tired. Nope. Doctor says, I don't want to hear about it. That's negative thinking. This is bad energy. But, Doc, I've got a growth coming out of my neck the size of, like, a softball that's becoming a football. Hey, did, doctor says, did, did you catch the series premiere of V this past week? I, I love sci-fi. I absolutely love sci-fi. Doc, I'm waking up every morning, and I'm bleeding out my eyeballs. I'm not listening. I'm not listening. Think positive thoughts. Come back and see me when you're feeling better, by the way. Now, it's true. Some people... Some of us do worry ourselves sick, and some people do need a gentle but firm reminder not to complain all the time when they're feeling ill. But the idea that sickness comes from our negative thoughts and we ourselves are to be blamed, well, I think that is not just sort of obviously scientifically dubious, but is morally and spiritually repugnant because it gives us an excuse not to care. It dresses up our indifference, our refusal to look at those who suffer or struggle who are ill, and it says effectively, let's blame the victim. Let's blame the one who is ill because I can't do anything for you. I can only make you feel more positive. And if you're not going to be positive, well, then you're just negative Nancy, a downer. And it gives us an opportunity just to simply to remain inside ourselves and cut off. With this view of life also misses is that very often illness which we don't seek of course but illness and our human greatness can be expressed simultaneously at the same time sometimes the most dire opportunities really are that we don't ask for it but still a chance to demonstrate our kindness and our love and our compassion and our commitment to living abundantly i think a lot of you know who this is who is that Alex's lemonade stand. Eight years old, Alexander Scott had childhood cancer, inspired millions of us before succumbing to that disease at age eight. Literally, literally, 
when life gave Alexander Scott lemons, she made lemonade. That was her response. Did she bring her cancer upon herself? Did an eight-year-old have such contorted, disturbed thinking that somehow she made herself sick? It was just a matter of saying to Alexander Scott, have the right intention. Have the right wish. Overcome your sick thinking. Get positive, and you will be well. Or, did Alexander Scott, facing an unbelievable situation for herself and, of course, for her parents, facing the fact that she was not even going to get out of the first decade of life, did she choose to share with the world an abundant love and an abundant hope? See, judged by that sort of obvious understanding of success that suggests longevity or health or wealth, Alex, you failed. That's what we think success is. But Alex and her lemonade stand remind us that the ultimate success of our lives is not measured in the length of our years, but by the quality of our days. Not in the amount of time that we are on this earth, but the effect that we make in our lives and in the lives of other people. This past week, I saw a really sort of interesting demonstration of this. My wife and I have a sick rabbit at home, a sick pet. And so several times in the past few weeks, we've gone down to University of Pennsylvania Veterinarian Hospital. And I mean, it's like a long line of very acute, sick dogs, parrots, rabbits, cats, all just waiting there in their crates and their boxes, waiting to be seen by the vets. I don't think I have been in a place, maybe actually other than Wellsprings, in which I've experienced such remarkable kindness. All those people sitting there with all those sick pets, sharing their stories, sharing their frustrations, sometimes laughing, sometimes crying. People who didn't know each other before they sat there and had to wait for the vets to come out to see them, talking about how they might help each other if the vet bills are, in fact, so large that they cannot afford them. Sometimes, when we feel we have not succeeded in the obvious ways, it is an opportunity to demonstrate how we, in fact, have succeeded in the deepest ways. This is the part that's tough. So I'm preparing for this message and really wanting to get at the heart of why I was not just sort of found myself in disagreement and have found myself in disagreement with this understanding that the secret presents of the law of attraction. You know, it really felt to me like something vital in our humanity and in our potential for spiritual growth is really at stake here. You know, really at stake in this, in this refusal to, to care for each other and to respond to people that are suffering and not just sort of have this roundabout way of blaming the victim. And so if you haven't heard this story before, I'm sorry to bring it into your consciousness, but I know probably a lot of you have heard this story. Two weeks ago in um, California, there was, um, there, was a, there was a gang rape um, of a 15-year-old girl. And as almost disturbing as the facts of that are, and that this unbelievably brutal, vicious assault took place over two and a half hours, the police estimate, was that as many people who participated in this atrocity watched it and did nothing. Now, I don't even want to focus right now on those young men who, who, who did this evil thing 
or, or perpetuated it by not calling attention to it. I know last week I preached about anger and compassion and believing that compassion can be greater than our anger. I got to say, when I think about this story, it doesn't work for me, not yet. <laughs> Maybe never will. But I would like to imagine all of us, all of us here sitting by this, and I use this word intentionally, this victim's bedside. And I hope none of us would say this, but imagine someone else came into the room and maybe you thought they were there to try and help. And then saying to her, you brought this atrocity upon yourself by your thoughts. It must be your own negative thinking. The only way you're going to get better is just be positive about this. You weren't brutalized, doesn't matter. I would hope that all of us would have the good sense to kick that person in the ass and kick him out of the room. The test of all of our theologies is this. This reveals the spiritual depth within us. Does what we believe hold the water of the tears that those who suffer shed? This is what it means for our beliefs, our values to hold water. Do we want to have a way out? Do we want to find a way out of not responding to someone who suffers? Or can we be a presence with and to a person who suffers? Sometimes in life, the rain just falls on the just and the unjust. And my problem with the secret most primarily is that it says the rain just falls on the unjust or those who don't think correctly or those who don't reason correctly or have negative thoughts. And that truly, if you just set your intention in the right way, then everything will work out fine for you. Sometimes in life, there are victims. There are people who are victimized. Doesn't mean I believe in victimology, <laughs> that someone just, you know, perpetuates, perpetuates, perpetuates through all our life through the prism of the worst thing that's ever happened to them, and they stay disempowered. I don't believe in that. I believe in healing, and healing and victimology can't exist. But there are true victims. There are people who are injured deeply by this life. And when we dress up our indifference, or when we are encouraged to dress up our indifference in the guise and in the garb of spiritual growth, or getting what we want, then really what we are wearing is nothing but our own naked narcissism. Nothing but our own egocentrism. Because the truest, clearest acid test of our spiritual growth is the call to care. To be there and to be a presence. Not to invent reasons, but to be a witness. One of my favorite poems, and one that I go to over and over again, particularly when I find myself facing my own experiences or hearing about experiences like this god-awful event. And I know there's no rational answer or no way to rationally get over the fact that I feel bad about it. I remember this poem from Raymond Carver, who wrote it at the end of his life after he had awakened, sure, sort of wasting many years of his talent in his life. He was facing his own death within months. It's called Late Fragment. He says, and did you get what you wanted from this life? Even so. I did. And what did you want? 
call myself beloved, to feel myself beloved on the earth. That even so is that grace note and also the recognition that we don't get what we would want all the time. Not in terms of those objective measures of success where we get by life unscathed or we never suffer or we never experience pain. But that even so, that sometimes when life does in fact rain down things upon us that we think we cannot handle, that the even so that Raymond Carver poses is that hope that still we can be beloved upon this earth and know ourselves to be beloved. I thank God that there is, by whatever name we call it, something bigger in our universe, moral and spiritual, that is more powerful than just getting what we want. We see that in those moments when we know we do not have to turn our eyes away or our hearts away in shame because we have been injured, that other people will look upon us and not tell us where we went wrong, but simply offer to care. This is my prayer, and I have no idea what good it does, but my prayer for that young woman, as she might heal, that she may know even so. She's not getting through this life unscathed. And actually none of us do. Even so. To call ourselves beloved. To know ourselves as beloved. This, as the old poem goes, is to have succeeded. Amen. May you live in blessing. Let's pray together. Source of love, may we be a source of love. Source of compassion, may we be a source of compassion. Source of grace, may our lives be grace. May we know that the truest measure of success is not that every desire, every wish will ever be fulfilled, but that we might know in our heart of hearts, deep within our bones, that there is connection that cannot be severed, there is the promise of wholeness that can never be taken away, and that we will vow to become or to remain the kind of people who can look upon all of this world and not look away because it makes us uncomfortable or makes us feel vulnerable. May we become that source of love that the world needs us to be. Amen.